Welcome back to The Third Space. I'm your host, Avi, and my guest today is Raphael Daskalou. Raph is a quirky scholar with a unique interest in Judeo-Arabic thought and literature. He holds a master's degree in comparative religion and a PhD in the history of Judaism from the University of Chicago. He is currently serving as adjunct research associate at Monash University. And most excitingly, he has just started Beit Midrash Ovis, a house of study here in Melbourne, which is officially due to open in 2024. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. I was once playing this game with my two-year-old niece. Uh, I'd be sitting on the floor and she would walk to the other side of the room and then turn around and then run full speed at me and leap into my outstretched arms. And then I'd lift her up and then I'd put her back down and then she'd go back and she'd do it again. This probably happened about 50 times. Good exercise. <laughs> Very good exercise. But my favorite part of the game was at the moment where she was airborne, our eyes would sort of lock and I would see just her face beaming, radiating with this pure joy and pure exhilaration. And I just kind of remember in that moment, it's weird, like the whole universe sort of stood still. And it was incredibly magical to me. And I, I kind of had a realization in that moment that like God is a bit like the sun. You can't really stare at him, but you can catch glimpses. And that forms the basis of like a large part of my spirituality, whatever that word means. And to be honest, like I, I, I see God everywhere. I think God for me is quite sensory and maybe related to feelings of awe. Like I, I, I see God through nature and art and conversations and humor and uh, even work. Um, but the thing is that that conception isn't really tied to Judaism or any other religious framework as far as I'm aware. It's kind of religion agnostic. So my question to you in the best way that I can ask it is this, and I hope all of that made sense. That makes sense. <laughs> um, why, why invest in the Jewish framework to support a universal spirituality? To put it another way, why pour my spiritual energy into the Judaism-shaped cup? I'm going to separate this question from a conversation about the Bet Midrash because the Bet Midrash is really a place for reading and engaging with Jewish thought. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a cultural it's a cultural space, mm -hmm. and there is no theology that anybody needs to bring to it or take out of it. Right? Mm -hmm. There are no neutral human beings. We all come with a past. We all come with a culture. We all come, even 21st century Western uh, Anglophone people come with a culture. You know, there's nothing, nothing's neutral. Mm -hmm. So this, this is a space for engaging with, with, Jewish, with Jewish intellectual and literary culture. And certainly um, a piece of that is well, a very big part of it is a spiritual tradition, right? But it's as embodied in literary sources and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the same. You can open up uh, works of English poetry, you know, um, and and find plenty of spiritual material, material that engages with the biblical corpus that talks about the place of the human being in the cosmos and whatever. By reading um, By reading Milton, I don't need to accept his... Theology, right? Mm -hmm. Reading, I don't know, Shakespeare. I don't need to accept a theology that he assumes or something. That's not, I should read it because it's enriching and because it, it um, opens up new intellectual horizons for me. It, it provides me insight sometimes into myself. Mm -hmm. But there's no spiritual, particular spiritual position or doctrinal position, religious position that people need to bring to this reading and there's no position that they need to take out of this reading. Mm -hmm. It's engaging with one's cultural heritage and I, I see that as enriching and positive. Moving on to your actual question. So I'm separating it because, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it, it really is, like it's a space where I'm, I would love 
those conversations to be happening here. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that there's nothing anybody needs to take out of this space, right? Coming to the actual substance of your question, which is a bigger question, right? Mm -hmm. So it's bigger than this space or any space, right? Is that your concept of the divine is not tied to a particular literary corpus or set of practices or it's not like, oh, I see a glimpse of something I think of as the divine in all the things around me. There is something peeking through all existence and, um, and, I, and I have this intuitive sense of, of it being there, this sort of like underlying life or something, right? But that's not tied to putting tefillin on in the morning, right? That's got nothing to do with Shabbos, right? And, and in some sense, like I totally hear that. There's no necessary correspondence between your experience of your conception of the divine, your experience of, of what that means, and, and a set of books. Yeah, I mean, so that, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I do think, though, that um, there's something... So firstly, I, I want to say that that experience is actually articulated in some really interesting ways in classical Jewish sources. So one way to actually bridge a conversation between your experience and the, the question of like what is the value of Jewish learning and, and this tradition, um, one, of, one of the ways I might approach that is that very similar ideas have been articulated. So there are many Jewish theologies, many different ways that it's approached. But, for example, in Kabbalistic thought, you have this idea of enclothements. I've seen it more in, uh, in a Hasidic literature, but, uh, and I'm not sure where its earliest use is, but they talk about sort of the divine, the infinite, being enclothed as, as it sort of unfolds into the space in which being, as we think of it, is going to emerge, right? It's sort of, it becomes enclosed in mm -hmm. forms. It becomes enclosed in sort of dimmer lights and <laughs> you know, it becomes sort of um, veiled and enclosed. Mm -hmm. Now, the enclosements in a lot of these systems, and this is again cross, this is cross-cultural, I mean, at least across the traditions that, in, that, that look back to the classical Greek heritage and this sort of thing. There's this idea that the the symbol or the the veil, right? The veil both conceals what's behind it, mm -hmm. but it also leads you to what's behind it, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. it's sort of there's this paradox of a sense of uh, glimmering existence that you, something underlying that sits beneath everything, but it's hidden. It's veiled. Like you're drawn to it through these forms, but the forms are also a veil. They, they conceal. Um, that's certainly an idea that receives a very robust articulation and an experience that, that um, is very robustly articulated across Jewish um, mm -hmm. thought and, and uh, especially in the Kabbalistic tradition, especially. Because yeah, yeah. the, the philosophers will emphasize much more like like Maimonides will emphasize much more like a chasm between the reality of the divine, which is what really exists. That's actual existence. That's what's fundamental. And these shifting forms that we see that are can one get beyond the, the veil or the chasm? According to the to the Rambam to and Kabbalist and his sources and all the, all the Rambam. Yeah. Um in different ways, yes. The Rambam is much less optimistic about it. Mm -hmm. His children and grandchildren and stuff are much more optimistic about it. Um, they get into Sufism. They get in, into yeah into Islamic mysticism. They stay very from Jews. They they remain the rabbinic leadership of their communities, yeah. but they get into Sufism, which is really cool. They get cool. into Sufism instead um, of Kabbalistic tradition, or they don't have Spanish Kabbalah. And so what right, we think of as Kabbalah has not migrated to the Islamic world yet because their right. Kabbalah is emerging in Christian Spain yeah. and the Rambam's descendants are living in the Muslim uh, in Muslim Egypt right. a little so they're bit just gravitating Syria. towards that, what they have access to yeah people yeah. engage with whatever they have access to yeah. exactly okay. exactly so so I think sometimes we can actually find echoes of what we intuitively feel in classical literature yeah um, sometimes we can be ch challenged by classical literature um, 
I think that there are, I'm very drawn to the study of other religions. You mentioned my master's was in comparative religion. Mm-hmm. Um, my current research, a lot of it explores like the, the sort of the, the nexus between Judaism and Islam, uh, which I mean, I'd say more like the way that Jewish writers engage with Islamic literature a lot of the time. I'm very curious about other, other traditions, uh, but I do think that um, there is richness that comes from engaging deeply in a tradition. And it's something that's hard to do in contemporary consumerist society. Mm-hmm. People are impatient. They also, it's a context that doesn't really encourage, it's a culture that doesn't really encourage very deep engagement and reading and and even and even praxis and by practice like by practices i don't mean necessarily like conforming to this religious ideal or that particular this orthodox ideal or this particular idea or something i'm i mean i think human beings need some kind of uh i think there's a reason that there are rituals cross-culturally humans need rituals we need mm-hmm. you know ways to move through the day through to encounter the sunlight in the morning and mark that to um to process grief to mm-hmm. uh engage with community you know around things that are that can contain community and can facilitate community i think that we those are things that cross culturally we need i think that our contemporary culture is not very good at providing them and i do think that jewish tradition has those has those resources i think it can provide mm-hmm. um again it doesn't mean you need to conform to anything and i think that's really important i think it's important people feel a sense of ownership mm-hmm. and know that well, it's not just feel know that they own their own path there are people who want the comfort of this is the path you don't have to think about it okay. this is it this is the authentic one you're on the right one there's nothing to think about um that's that's one way of going about life my assumption is that it, it's better for most of us to be authentic and honest. That will lead people to different lifestyles. That's fine. Especially at this moment where, like, this cultural moment is a strange cultural moment. This historical moment is a strange moment. We, we don't think generationally, but, like, where I grew up in a migrant community of displaced, traumatized people. My kids are not going to grow up in the same community. Yeah. They're growing up in a very different community. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a very multilingual community. You know, my kids are not. They're not growing up in the same kind of multilingual environment. Um, the Especially in Sydney, it was a different migration. Here, Yiddish was very dominant. In Sydney, it was like crazy. All of my friends' grandparents spoke different languages. All of my, friend, all of my parents' friends spoke different languages. Oh, interesting. Because so it was like a much Melbourne. more diverse migration to Sydney right, than, right, right. than to Melbourne. Okay. Um, but what a different world to grow up in. So at this cultural moment, there's no way that there's one path that is going to make sense to everybody. It's not, I don't think it's possible. I think we all have to own our own decisions. So I open up a book here on the bookshelf, right? It, it's not going to give me <laughs> the path in life. There's, I have to own that. And it's honest to say, we all own it. We all have to take responsibility. There's no, nobody's going to do that. So my assumption is people are going to, people should be encouraged to take that responsibility. Yeah. And also nobody's going to land in the same place. And that's great. That's fine. Sure. That's, um, but yeah, but I totally understand the, the split between the question of how we relate to the divine on the one hand, or if we have a concept of the divine at all, um, which I do, which is not entirely dissimilar, I think, from yours. Um, and what's the relationship between that and Torah and mitzvot? They, in some sense, it makes sense to separate them. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, Torah and mitzvot are very important, you know, in terms of like how I live. Sure, but they're, sure. they're not necessarily going to be for, for everybody. Right, right, right. There is this sort of promise that if you do undertake um, consistent uh, Jewish practice and belief, that there is a potential positive transformation that can happen on the other side. I was reading this book recently called Transformative Experience by uh, L.A. Paul. She's a philosophy professor at Yale, I believe. And basically what she talks about is that there are certain experiences in life, such as uh, choosing a profession or 
getting into a relationship, deciding to get married, becoming a parent, even adhering to a particular religious tradition that are kind of like these one-way tunnels that irrevocably change who you are and what you find salient in the world. And you can't know in advance of the experience how your values and preferences are going to change. Um, the interesting thing is we are very attached to who we currently are. Mm. And, we, and, and that's what makes these experiences that have potential benefit very difficult to undertake because in a sense, a part of you has to die to make space for a new you to emerge, right? One that has maybe a larger worldview. And so I think that's um, potentially one of the benefits of picking up a, a framework, right? Does your definition of faith, what you think of faith, does it accord with that sort of idea where um, you there is a sort of one-way tunnel and you, you're only relying on the testimony of others? You, you, you can't know in advance of what, how you're going to look on the other side. Um, you go into it and you trust the process that you'll come out um, different, hopefully better. Is that your idea of faith? Um, so firstly, I have a little bit of a complicated relationship with the word faith. Yes. Me and too. I think the way that we <laughs> think about it is very Protestant. A very Christian idea, right? The idea yeah. that you accept a proposal, you accept like a, a proposition, yeah, without any evidence, and I'm and I I'm going to accept that, right? Yeah. That's faith, the way that we use it, right? As opposed to knowledge, mm -hmm. as opposed to, um, I don't think that's a very Jewish idea, and I don't think that that is a very Islamic idea, and I think it's a very Protestant idea, mm -hmm. um, and it's. Um, and especially the idea that through through faith alone one is saved that that's a protestant idea that faith is at the center of our religious life and whatever mm. um my understanding of the hebrew term emuna is quite different and it's devotion or fidelity and it's it's a different thing i don't really accept propositions about things that i think are beyond you know I, I don't, if somebody tells me this is what happens in the afterlife, I say that's an interesting idea. That's an right. interesting idea. Right. I, I am quite agnostic when it comes to those things. Like what exactly, and there are different, there are different theories in Jewish thought. There are many different ideas about the, the fate of, the, of human consciousness and, and things like this. So the idea of faith as something you just accept um, and it is not something that speaks to me at all right. um, and secondly I'd say that the idea that you'll only know at the other side I'm not sure I accept either meaning like I have to spend a lifetime engaging this to know what it will produce obviously I'm not going to know what I'm going to be like at the age of 80 at you know <laughs> really at the at the age of uh, of 42 right I'm not I'm not going to know I'm not going to know that um, but I think at any given point I have to I have to be convinced that these practices are somehow a positive thing. Mm -hmm. They don't have to produce happiness and pleasure in me every time I do them, but I, ha I have to believe that there is something about Shabbos that makes it worth doing, right? Mm -hmm. There's some, I, I have to have a sense that that makes, that makes some kind of sense for me yeah. personally. Yeah. So for me, it's not a question of faith in terms of just accepting a proposition. I, I, I need to believe that um, what I'm doing makes sense on, on the one hand, personally. Um, but I think it's also important to leave room for, for growth. And I do think that some, some of these things, it is in the course of, um, you know, I mean, I've come to those understandings in the course of practice and in the course of learning, you know, practice over years. So I've been, you know, observant for, I guess, 30 years. I would hope that we all stand at the particular point as, as adults, you know, we can all stand at this particular moment and look back and say, oh, I've grown, right? Mm -hmm. So part, part of me is just like, oh, of course, of course, like, you know, I've grown and that was a big part of it. Um, but I think there's more than that. I think that especially, especially through learning, 
uh, through traditional traditional learning. I think I've internalized Jewish narratives and mythology and teachings in a way like they're in my kishkas, yeah, in my guts, <laughs> and that's how I face the world. Those are the tools I have for facing the world. Yeah, yeah. and I and I believe that they're really good tools. I think that they're. I think. Um, Life throws some really crazy stuff at you. Mm -hmm. And I think that having those narratives and those teachings and those formulations sort of in, inside you, mm. it's, a, it's a good way to face the world. It's good to have, you know, so that, that in that sense, I do feel like it's very much contributed and shaped. It's absolutely shaped who I am. It's inseparable from who I am. It's inseparable from who I am. It's even, I, I'm starting to realize, even answering the question is very difficult because it's inseparable from who I am. Yeah. I, can't even, I can't even think in terms of myself separate from those, those practices. Very, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it's, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like um, there's two layers to knowledge. There's, there's the propositional knowledge and non-propositional knowledge. And I guess I really like the uh, analogy or the imagery used of, of it sitting in your kishkas because that 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 shows that it exists at a non-propositional level. Mm. Um, I really like that, and I also want to maybe segue now into talking about ritual. There's a lot of ritual that is stuff that we don't understand on a pro propositional level, but we do it anyway because of the benefits that could happen on the non-propositional mm. level. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, actually, I really agree with that. Yeah. I think that there's there's um, so two things. One, there's a story in the Chuangzi. You know the the uh, Chinese philosophical classic, Chuangzi. Chuangzi. It's one one of the Taoist uh, classics. There okay. are sort of two major, sort of ancient philosophical classics of the, of the Taoist tradition, mm -hmm. and one of them is is a book called Chuangzi, okay. and um, I believe by it's, it's attributed to a sage named Chuangzi. I believe, and uh, there's a story in it that um, <clears throat> that there are loggers that walk down a certain road every day, and there are these straight trees. They're very straight and they're very useful trees, and that's why they live to half their lifetime. Because they're straight and they're useful and they serve a purpose. And in the middle of the road is this gnarled, twisted old tree, and it's useless. It's full of knots and it's twisted. It's completely this strange, mangled mass of tree. And it's completely useless to the loggers, and that's why they ignore it, and it lives to a ripe old age. And that's why the sage cannot be exploited. So the sage doesn't conform to a particular purpose. It just, it grows and it's twisted, but it gives fruit, um, f uh, fruits and shelter and it, it houses a world within it, right? So I understand this is a stretch. It's talking about this, the individual sage. I'm talking about ritual, but, mm -hmm. the, but I think that ritual is a little similar in the sense that rituals have not meant the same thing to people across time and across space and but they contain so much they have sure. they have room for lots of meaning and different experiences yeah and so and it's this kind of roominess in ritual that makes it transmissible it means that like every new generation in every new cultural context can sort of engage with it in a, in a slightly different way. Yeah, it can mean, yeah. it can take on different meanings. It can facilitate slightly different experiences. Because rituals are not immediately useful. Exactly. There, there is no, and it's the not like thing it serves that purpose. Yeah, if, it were, if the tree was useful, it would have been removed or... Yeah, exactly. There's a point at which that place. purpose would have fallen out of, out yeah. of you know... Um, and so there's actually a school of academics. This is the second point. There's a school of academics called the Cambridge Ritualists. Yeah. Um, sort of in the in the past, they uh, and they came up with the with the chidush with a new idea that when you see a ritual, sort of prescribed in a mythic text or something, there's a story, and then out of this story it prescribes a ritual. Almost always the ritual predates the story, and the story is reframing a ritual it received. So very often you can actually trace ritual practices way, 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 way back, and they, they have this deep history, but, um, and, oh, and that just gets sort of reframed and reframed and reframed and reframed. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I actually find there's something um, almost, uh, what's the word? Not primal, something really basic, really fundamental in ritual practice mm -hmm. 
and participating in communal ritual and this sort of thing. Um, but it shifts in its meaning. It can it can contain different experiences and it can mean different things at different time at different times and it has um, that you know m- many of those rituals have really shifted in their meaning across time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So I want to switch um, gear a little bit and talk about Revelation. What do you think about like how how would you define Revelation? Do you think it's the same thing as intuition on a personal psychological level? Um, or is it something else in your mind, maybe more objective, more from on high? So I'm assuming that when you ask about revelation, you specifically mean of, of books, mm-hmm. yeah, that are traditionally considered to be prophetic or of divine origin. Exactly, or exactly, exactly. That's yeah, what yeah. I so assume the you're talking is about. So considered to be like a, a source of revelation, yeah. And yeah. so the first thing... I want to quote my high school Tanakh teacher, mm-hmm. who was one of the people that I um, had the the good fortune of encountering when I did, who was um, uh, Mr. Michael Benstock, who when I asked him about his personal theology, he I, I asked him, I had recently discovered in high school, this was in, in high school, I'd recently discovered there was this idea of, an, there were people with, different theologies and some of them didn't seem to believe in an interventionist God, whatever that, in retrospect, that's a very, that's, these are very crude tools, right? But that's how I was thinking, interventionist or non-interventionist. So I went to him and I said, do you believe in an interventionist God? And he said, look, my life has led me to that position, but you should know there are lots of different theologies. Lots of people come up with different ways of thinking about God and formulate and experience the world in different ways. My experience, that's what he said, my experience has led me to belief in an interventionist God. Later, he came up to me and he apologized for telling me what he thinks. <laughs> you know? And he said, you need to own what you think. I shouldn't tell you what to think. Don't think that I'm trying to push you in a direction. You need to figure out what you think. Mm-hmm. And so firstly, that, that meant a lot to me that he actually came up and, and um, sort of pursued the conversation. Um, and basically sort of affirmed, gave me permission and sort of affirmed my own path and my own thinking and my own process. Um, But I kind of want to say something similar, which is I can share my ideas, but they have no bearing on other people, right? I I understand that those ideas are just my ideas. Mm -hmm. For me personally, um, for me personally, I think it's hard to answer this question without going a step back to an earlier question, which is how we think about God. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a God who writes books, the idea of a God who is this sort of character with string, you know, a puppet master, is um, does not make sense to me on an ontological level. So as what actually is, right, can I believe in a being like that, I have a lot of trouble believing in that kind of formulation. I want to say, I think there are two different ways we can think about the divine. One is in mythical terms, the stories that we tell, and they're really important. And they frame our place in the world, right? Um, The idea of a divinity, a creator that is sort of has these competing impulses of justice you know, that can be harsh, cause and effect on the one hand. And on the other hand, love and forgiveness. So Rahamim versus Din, right? And then human beings have to position themselves in relation to Rahamim and Din and really be Rahamim and arouse cosmic Rahamim, arouse cosmic compassion so that that is dominant in the world, so that we have a more compassionate world, a more forgiving world. That's a, that's a mythology that, that's a, a myth in terms of like a story that we tell. I don't mean that in a dismissive way. It's an academic term. Myth in terms of a narrative. Yeah. And it's really, it's important in terms of how we see ourselves in the world. The, where we, how we position ourselves towards the world, to, also towards the divine, towards ourselves. They're really important. And they, so I'm not dismissive of those narratives. I think that they they have depth and tremendous insights in them, right? But when we talk ontology, what what really is, it's a bit of a different conversation. 
and I find belief in that kind of like in in the character of God in that in that way, I can't believe it in that in that way. So a God that writes books, I realized in high school is is something that I, I can't believe in. Um, and in high school, I towards the end of high school, I gave myself permission to let go of that idea when I discovered that there are many Jewish thinkers who think in much more complex terms and, to my mind, much more compelling terms about the divine. Um, and so then once, once you've sort of said, okay, well, th- there are people who can believe that there is divine communication in words, you know, and a book can be given in that way. There are people who believe that. That's fine if somebody can believe that. One, but once I acknowledge that I can't, what are the ways that people have thought about, you know, for example, Maimonides, who didn't believe in that kind of theology, right? This is a God that sits outside of every category that you can possibly come up with. This is a God that is not actually pained by your pain. It doesn't respond to your prayers in any direct way. It's completely impersonal. What does what does revelation mean to the Rambam, mm-hmm. right? So to the Rambam, it's not communication from the divine to humans below. It is humans reaching into their minds, <laughs> reaching into their their own into the depths of their minds, looking out at the world, observing the world, and using their own mental capabilities mm-hmm. to understand. I love this. To yeah. come to insights, that's that's revelation. Yeah. It's put in technical terms, right? I'm not going to bother with the technical terms because they they we've got to describe the whole cosmology. There's a whole. The Rambam will write in his books about the active intellect, mm-hmm. and in Yeshivot, where they read the Rambam, they'll read about the active intellect. They ask people, "What is the active intellect?" Very few people will tell you what the active intellect is. I'm not going to tell you now because it's. Do you want me to tell you? I can tell you. There's an idea that that from the divine they emanate, so they sort of flow um, these different sort of layers of being, Mm -hmm. and the initial things that emanate emanate from the divine are intellect, Mm -hmm. Um, and they are these layers of intellect, these levels of intellect, that are described as angels. So the Rambam is actually taking that identification from early Islamic thinkers um, and they're, they're thought of as, as angelic. And the lowest of these minds that emanate from the divine is what he calls the active intellect, what they call the active intellect. And it basically governs the world from the moon down. It's called the sublunar world. The, the world from the moon down is governed by this mind and that mind produces the forms that we see in this world, and it's um, and so prophecy is is born of a mental connection to the intellect that governs the world. There's a lot of physics and metaphysics that sits behind that 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 is sort of assumed, um, but that's the that's the scientific worldview that the Rambam inherited, mm-hmm. and he believed that basically prophecy is the human imagination giving some form to insights that are basically mental insights. But it's all happening in here. It's all happening in the human mind. So even to the extent that a lot of the descriptions of the the sort of the, um, the thunder and lightning around the revelation at Mount Sinai, um, the Rambam understands metaphorically, and there is there's some very interesting passages in the Rambam about this. But it seems that it's all it's all metaphor for the Rambam. Mm-hmm. It's all metaphor what's taking place in here. So you read the story and there's thunder and lightning and this chauffeur noise and whatever. According to the Rambam, what that is actually describing is Moshe Rabbeinu like this, <laughs> and then writing something down and teaching it to me. For those uh, listening and not watching, it's Moshe Rabbeinu being completely still with his eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just it's it's happening. It's happening internally. Yeah, and um, so so for him, that's basically saying prophecy is a human is a human endeavor mm-hmm. to attain insight. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
For me personally, that's complicated by the fact that I engage with history, you know. Yeah. And so I, I also, um, so I obviously also don't buy into a 13th century um, or 12th, 13th century Aristotelian worldview. I don't actually like the, I don't, the active intellect is not really a part of the, uh, well, it is a part of the world that I engage with because I work on a lot of medieval stuff. But, but, um, <laughs> but beyond that, but yeah, beyond that in my day-to-day, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, so obviously that's not a formulation that I can just adopt into my world, right? Sure. So I'm more interested in the social role played by the prophet in biblical literature. What does a prophet mean to a biblical author, right? What is a prophet? What's the role of a prophet? Um, also, the idea of producing this literature and this, this spiritual tradition as a human endeavor, that is something that comes to me straight from the Rambam. That's something that I that really, I do see it as a human endeavor. It's mm-hmm. something that humans are trying to do. Um, so to me, the question is really, is this good? Is this insightful? Are these practices good and insightful? Are they? And I, I think I people take different things, and that that is also affirmed in traditional rabbinic thought. It's something that I used to think was a little bit of a Hasidic shavuot, right? It's a bit of a Hasidic teaching that doesn't really sit yeah. as like such a, an ancient teaching. But the idea that it's um, taught, have you ever come across the Meshilach Ishbitz? No. Um, so it's a, it's a particular Polish Hasidic tradition. So he has this teaching that the divine inscribed the Torah on on the heart of every Jew at Mount Sinai, and they all have their own internal Torah, which is different. Every wow. human being has like their own Torah yeah. inscribed within them. Every Jew has their own Torah inscribed okay. within them. That really accords a lot with what I've read from, uh, I think it was Martin Buber. He said that the Torah is not something that's received from the top down, but that's rather subjectively understood from the bottom up. Each person individually comes to it themselves. It's so very I, much in line with that. I think that there are really also many classical rabbinic interpretations that talk about like the, the multiplicity of, of voices and insights that you can find in the Torah mm-hmm. and also that recognize that not everybody's path is the same. Each of the sages, you know, have their own positions and their own teachings and they often disagree and that's and that's fine. Um, but there's an, an amazing version of a Mishnah in in uh, Avot. So so what we commonly call ethics of the fathers, right? The tractate Avot of the Mishnah, roughly from the I guess the turn of the second century, around two hundred of the common era. And there's there's a version in the manuscripts and especially the nicest version of this version is in the oldest complete manuscript of the Mishnah called the Kaufman Manuscript. Mm-hmm. And it's and instead of saying, so there's a famous Mishnah that Ben Bagbag says, turn it over and turn it over, for everything is in it. Gaze into it, grow old and grey in it, um, and uh, don't move from it because... There's nothing better than it. So that, that's a Mishnah in Avot. The other version that you see in the manuscripts, and for some reason, this is not the version that has landed in front of us in the printed text, but it's there in the manuscripts, and it's amazing, is turn it over and turn it over, for all of you is in it, and all of it is within you. Now, does that sound like like a Hasidic Shavon? <laughs> That's like you can take that from like you know, take that from one of these early Hasidic masters, and you can chuck it back into two hundred of the Common Era, and it's that it's really like we discover Torah in ourselves, That's and we discover ourselves yeah. unfolding in the process of of engaging with Torah. Your own wisdom, your own insights are part of this. They're part yeah. of this. They are Torah. And we discover layers of ourselves and parts of ourselves in engaging with Torah mm-hmm. is, I think, amazing. So to me, that's much, that's much more of a, it's a different angle. It doesn't quite get at what is revelation. Again, I'm not sure that revelation is even a term that I hear the term revelation and I think about European 
you know, Protestant conversations. I think about modern orthodoxy and, and religious apologetics and people having to sort of try to explain how they can be practicing Jews in the modern world and things like this. And to me, I just think the pre-moderns had such richer tools. Their tools were, were, were better than yeah. this revelation yeah. business. And, and some of those tools are this mythical communication, right? And, and that's fine. But some of them are also these formulations that sit within uh, earlier philosophical and scientific worlds, but it's still, I think, really useful. The idea of Torah as being produced by all of us who engage with it, as, you know, trust in our internal wisdom as well, right? And also the idea of producing this as a human endeavor is really compelling to me. Mm. I find it really empowering that it's kind of like a project. Judaism is kind of a project that each individual participates in in almost a tangible way because we're all subjectively making sense of it on our own and then transmitting that onwards to the next generation. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, I do want to now segue into potentially what will be our last topic. I'm not sure yet, but um, I do want to talk about the connection between uh, uh, Judaism and the land of Israel. And the reason I want to talk about this is because I think it's a little bit topical at the moment, considering that at this point in time, as we sit here, there is unfortunately a war raging between Israel and um, Hamas in Gaza. And um, there's a lot of uh, rhetoric going around at the moment and a lot of um, accusations and caricatures um, levied towards the Jews that um, they're not indigenous to the land of Israel. And I find that kind of peculiar because in a sense, Judaism is an Israel-shaped religion. Firstly, um, I don't want to speak specifically about the situation because I don't, I don't want to cry on camera. Um, <laughs> I would the, prefer this to remain politically yeah, yeah, yeah. neutral. Yeah. Um, but what, what I will say, apart, apart f okay, I have to acknowledge that like my, my heart is shattered by what's going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's and it's a big topic, but it's a it. I think we'll put current events to the side. In terms of the discourse around the foreignness of Jews, I think that it is so. Firstly, the indigeneity conversation when it comes to places like Australia, you know, I think those that conversation can make sense, right? To project that onto the Eastern Mediterranean and is a very strange thing to do. Mm -hmm. and, the, and there are people all across the political spectrum who want to do this for different reasons, to argue for the indigeneity of this side or that side in certain ways. And I think it is deeply unproductive, deeply unhelpful. The history of that piece of land is so much more complicated and the populations over such long periods of time that have lived there and moved around and it is just so complicated. So the whole conversation around indigeneity, I think, is intended to undermine the other side's claim to that piece of land, right? Mm -hmm. I don't believe that is a helpful thing to do. N neither of these populations, when I say neither, there are like that I irons out so much more diversity, but no significant population is going anywhere without a, without a lot of bloodshed and violence and that's not something I'm going to sign on to and that that's my at the moment my minimal bar of like do you like mass slaughter and displacement no okay great you're a friend turns out that that's not such a given a at this moment in time right now which is sad yeah, yeah there are a lot of people who are not who who are not there and so but to me the indigeneity conversation very often is connected to this exclusive claim yeah. that I don't want to. I don't want to play that game. Definitely. I'm not going to play that game. So that I'm. So I step away from that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a Jewish connection to Eretz Israel, which is not an exclusive connection, I, I think it's 
dishonest to to see that as an exclusive connection. But a Jewish but a Jewish connection to Eretz Israel, I think if you're a, tra- a, a traditional Jew, it's very hard not to see that, right? Mm-hmm. We we sp- the language that I have prayed in almost every day of my life, right? You know, I mean, it has only been a vernacular again for a, for a few generations, mm-hmm. but has been a productive living language. He was ne- Hebrew was never a dead language. Mm-hmm. It was not only a literary language, but it was a spoken language between Jews who didn't share a vernacular. So there are many literary accounts of um, of educated Jews traveling and communicating with other Jews in Hebrew. It was never not a living language, and it's a Canaanite language. It's actually technically it's a Canaanite language. Um, so if you see transliterations of Ugaritic texts or, um, or I think some Hittite, Hittites are complicated, the term Hittite is complicated, but there are like basically Canaanite texts. You're looking at what they call archaic biblical Hebrew. So it's, um, it's very intelligible. It's ve- very intelligible. Somebody actually showed me um, an inscription the other day of uh, a stele. Which stele was it? it was a, but it was a Canaanite inscription. And it was a transliteration of it into modern Hebrew characters, into um, Jewish script or Assyrian script. And I read it and understood it. And he was very entertained because he was like, "Oh, this is a this is Canaanite. This is not Hebrew. This yeah, is." Yeah. Um, so one, the language itself obviously connects to, to that history, that deep history. Um, although I know that modern Hebrew, there, there are all these arguments about classifying modern Hebrew, and you know, I, I'm not going to mention names, but uh, the, uh, the, there are people in this country, this very country, who work on, on ah, now I have to mention the names. <laughs> uh, my, yeah, friend, you know my friend and colleague, Gilad Zuckerman, yeah. uh, has a famous, uh, famous sort of position where he, he talks about Israeli as an independent language and it's like the parent languages uh, of it are Yiddish and Hebrew, yeah. and I disagree with him profoundly. He loves Zuckerman. Is he from the University of Adelaide? Yeah. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. he's great. I haven't. I need to. Follow yeah. up so I disagree with him profoundly. Yeah. I disagree with him prof- profoundly, okay, and yeah. to some degree, it's a bit of a political question. But he he doesn't yeah. doesn't want to talk about that. <laughs> so okay, okay, um, okay. although he frames the other positions as political positions, but his is a non-political so, position. So wait, but just to back up. So one does the, yeah. yeah he's, he's, his contention is that there's, there's Israeli yeah. as opposed to the Hebrew that was spoken prior to the state of Israel? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah. Right. Whereas for you, it's, you don't delineate it in such a clean way. No. If, no. if at all. And I, and I think that with a lot of these language, with a lot of these questions around linguistic continuity, yeah. for me, a very big, Part of it is to what extent you can engage with earlier strata of the language, mm-hmm. and people do. They cross those strata very freely. Mm-hmm. So it's not that people are speaking biblical Hebrew; they're not. Right? They're obviously speaking something else. Yeah. But but they to not see linguistic continuity is a stretch. Is a very right. big stretch. Um, but anyway, so that's one that's one piece in it. The other piece, as you mentioned, is but the calendar. Right, mm-hmm. but the calendar is very much based. The, the traditional Jewish calendar of festivals is entirely based around the seasonal ag- and agricultural cycle of the land of Israel. And it, it actually, the further away you get, the less sense it makes. Here in Australia, it's completely flipped. So you don't actually <laughs> understand the significance of the festivals as you as you live them, because the seasons are completely reversed. Yeah, yeah. You so we just had Hanukkah yeah. as a summer festival where it's a winter light festival. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so obviously the calendar is made for, for, for the climate of specifically the land of Israel. It's actually amazing that, um, you know, we start our prayers for rain, Mm-hmm. Um, in traditional Jewish liturgy, you start the prayers for rain in Sukkot. And living in, in Jerusalem, it would be like, oh, it's Sukkot, the rains, yeah. here are the rains. Yeah. Until then, sure. there is no rain. And so they, they had a, um, there's a book festival called Shua HaSefer, Book Week. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's an outdoors book festival. And um, when my now spouse came, sort of moved there, um, she said, 
how are they leaving the books out? What if it rains? I said, what do you mean, what if it rains? It doesn't rain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's summer. You don't realize how predictable it is over here. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the, not like Melbourne. Yeah. So the, the, I, the idea of like the days of, like the summer versus the days of rain, yeah, you know, yeah. and that, that this is dry time and this is, <laughs> this is rain time. Yeah. Those assumptions are there in Jewish sources and in the liturgy and things like this. And um, that's obviously a connection to that seasonal world. Um, obviously, there's all, there are also, you know, there's, there's a long cultural history um, that's had many different phases. It's re- resulting in the production of lots of different kinds of literature mm-hmm. um, on the bookshelf. A lot of our literature is also diaspora literature. So, for example, yeah. the, the Babylonian Talmud is a product of... Sure. The Mesopotamian, the Jewish communities of Mesopotamia, right? That, that's a diasporic mm-hmm. cultural production. Um, but, you know, a lot of the classical literature and uh, going through sort of the early modern period, through Kabbalistic literature and obviously into the modern period, a lot of it is produced there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's obviously a deep cultural connection. I think that the, the political context makes it difficult as well to, to engage for, and, and these are, again, without going too deeply into it, I think these are complicated times for a lot of, um, for a lot of young Jews who are wrestling with their relationship with, yeah, yeah, with that's definitely true. Israel and Jewishness, the connection between those things, whether there is a connection, what that connection can or should or shouldn't look like, I think mm. it's, it's complicated stuff. Again, I wouldn't bring to Jewish learning too many assumptions around what one's going to find. There are, if you Google, you know, anti-Zionist, religious anti-Zionist literature, right, and religious arguments for Zionism, um, and I mean like Datil or Miso, like rabbinic Jews who are Zionist and rabbinic Jews who are anti-Zionist, and they quote from the Talmud. Both of them have quotes from the Talmud. All of those quotes are from one single daf in Ketubot, in in the in the Babylonian Talmud, yeah. they're next to each other. Which they're is... like enmeshed. They're like on the same piece of paper. They're yeah. they're they're there on the same page. So they're actually sort of in direct conversation in the Talmud. Right now, they've sort of like you know people have become very ideologically. In, in, in the Talmud, is it is it structured as a conversation? So that one of them's taken one side, and the other one's just taken the other side. It, it is, but yeah. there aren't with a lot of these things. There are no clear. The, the Talmud will not take a clear position, and yeah. that happens in in legal material as well. So that after the period of the Talmud, if you want to extract some kind of authoritative Jewish practice from the Talmud, that's going to be a yeah. big challenge. Yeah. So they had to find rules here and there within the Talmud for how they can determine and then formulate more rules. And yeah. they came up with a whole literature called the, these are, this is Sifruta Klalim, the, the literature of rules. This is how you can extract laws from the Talmud, right? Um, that's on, on the one hand, but that's when it comes to laws, when it comes to non-legal material. There's so much disagreement and it's tolerated. It just, it sits there. It's all there, you know. Yeah. So you can have this range of positions and that are all described there. And today it's, people, people get very polarized, but I'm always entertained when they, when they quote the same, basically the same sugya, the same passage in the Gemara. They're just quoting that line <laughs> or that line. It's like, eh, it's all there. But, uh, but yeah, but I wouldn't bring too many assumptions to what, you know, one one can land in lots of different positions, lots of yeah. different places when it comes to when it comes to that. Although to yeah. to sort of cut out the role of like there is no place for Eretz Israel in the discussion, it plays no role. I think that that would be dishonest. It does it does play a role. Yeah, it plays yeah. a historical role. It sits, it occupied that piece of land, which sort of occupies right, right. an important so the, place. The degree to which the to the degree to which the it is important within the overall Jewish canon varies from one person to the other. Uh, there are people will take different attitudes towards how mm. central how central that piece of land is in terms of you know do you have to live there? You know, like I mean, there like there there are people who will say. No, you're actually probably getting yourself into more legal sort of halachic complications by living there. Also, there might be centers of Torah elsewhere. Also, that there are there's this range of sort of 
And there are people who say, no, there's just a mitzvah to live there. You just got to live there. So that right. those are traditional positions, yeah. but also that doesn't compel you. It doesn't compel me. We mm. we read and we yeah. and we think. Um, there are actually movements today to sort of um, reassert the Torah of Eretz Israel to the exclusion of everything diasporic. Mm-hmm. And this is a particular attitude that sort of negates, they talk about Shlilat um, Agola, uh, the negation of the, of the diaspora. You know, this sort of like, okay. the diaspora is, a very, is a, an unnatural or a bad state of being or something. Right. And, and that's a very non-traditional approach. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a traditional approach. That, that mm-hmm. is something that is the idea that Jewish communities, wherever they were, produced profound cultural artifacts, profound thought, profound scholarship, profound literature, poetry. That has largely been a dia- diasporic, historically, for the, has, been, has been a diasporic endeavor. And so, yeah, I think for sure it's been multi multipolar in that sense, for sure, yeah. for sure. And into the modern period, I mean, into um, the 20th century. And it was really, there was a tremendous richness of Jewish thought being produced around the Jewish world. And the, the mid-20th century saw mass displacements and the end of very old communal centers. Mm. And um, this community lives in the in the wake of those. You know, this moment is all in the wake of those displacements. But this community, in particular, I think, um, is was really created in the way that it that it is now, in the wake of those of those events. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I mean, the answer is yes, multipolar. I see it all as valuable. I think a narrative that negates diasporic cultural production and the value of diasporic Jewish culture is a, is a, I see that kind of position as a very strange position, mm-hmm. um, not, not entirely a healthy position um, and not entirely an intellectually honest position as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's an Australian scientific researcher named Lynn Kelly and her area of expertise is primary orality. I'm not sure if you know what that means. No, I have no idea what that means. Once I define it, you'll know straight away. It's basically culture transmitted in the absence of literacy. So, uh-huh. yeah. So like indigenous cultures, prehistoric cultures, before they had writing, mm. the they had an issue of how do I transmit knowledge and wisdom down mm. from generation to generation without engaging in this game of broken telephone. Um in yeah. the absence of, of writing, which is like a robust way to, to keep things. Is that a big part of it? Um, yeah, I, yeah there's, there's many different techniques that she talks mm. about. And one of them is the, um, what, particularly what Aboriginal Australians did, which was um, take, uh, or, or not take, but encode knowledge in features of the landscape mm. in which they inhabited. So they'd walk around and they'd uh, ascribe one, you know, plant species and animal species and geology. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it's, it's almost like a memory palace kind of a thing where yeah, you're yeah. surrounded by like these features. It's exactly. And you can and you can spatially retain, because we think spatially, you can, if you associate data with mm. with spatial elements and whatever, you'll just retain it's heaps exactly, of data. Exactly, exactly. I have yeah. read that, and I can't remember where, that the quantity of data that is like internalized and retained mm-hmm. by people living in oral cultures as opposed to literate cultures is like vastly larger yeah. than literary cultures yeah. where you can refer externally to yeah. you have yeah. you know knowledge contained externally and so yeah they um a lot of the world champions of these memory games they use those systems, mm-hmm. yeah. those those ancient systems, and that's something that this researcher herself she did, and she's mm. she's now become a almost a polymath, like super knowledgeable about so many parts of history because she said she'd walk around with her dog around her neighborhood mm. and use that technique, and she just has an immense encyclopedic knowledge of history now because of it. But what's interesting, she said, is if she was to move out of her home 
given that she's now engaged in that activity of like mm. for decades, she's walked around the exact same part of her neighborhood. She would feel an immense sense of loss and um, connection to everything she knows because um, it's all encoded within the physical space in which she inhabits. And that's, I think that's part of the tragedy of what's befallen Aboriginal Australians. And so I was wondering within the context of Jews within the land of Israel, do, do you think the Torah loses its potency when it's, when it's not practiced within Israel? And I guess, you know, it's obviously changed now mm. because we have developed um, diasporic knowledge cultural artifacts but yeah how do you take that i think that any any historical rupture or displacement Mm -hmm. is obviously going to come with profound costs there's Mm -hmm. going to be a tremendous loss of cultural knowledge and i i think that that has happened many times in jewish history and it's happened i'll give you an example my grandfather-in-law my Mm -hmm. wife's grandfather um was, you know, uh, a modern, one of her grandfathers, was a sort of a modern Jew from Lodge, right? Mm-hmm. From, from, uh, from Poland. Wuj. Lodge in Jewish. Wuj in Polish. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lodz. Mm-hmm. You don't know better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, um, from a, sort of a modernized family, Mostly spoke to his peers in Polish, but at home his parents insisted on Yiddish, so he spoke Yiddish at home. His only formal Jewish education was going to Cheda. Mm-hmm. When I came to visit from Israel, and I met him for the first time, and he saw that I'm observant, and he said, "You learn some Gemara? You know, do I learn? Do I do I learn some Gemara? Do I do some learning? Read, read some, study some Talmud?" To translate into English, study Talmud, learn some Gemara, and I said, "Yeah, I try to learn a little every day." Do you learn some Gemara? And he says, "Nah, Famir is too hard. Famir's too hard, right?" Mm-hmm. Says because he's mis- mixing languages. Yeah, That's yeah. the standard, the standard migrant English, right? For me, it's too hard. He says, "I'm a Chumish Rashi Mishnayos man. Chumish Rashi Mishnayos." So. Torah with its main medieval commentary belonging to Rashi and, and Mishnah, right? Mm-hmm. The most ancient rabbinic law, law code. So it's like, that's, that's what I'm comfortable learning. What I'm comfortable learning is Chumash Rashi and Mishnayas. Mm-hmm. Every day he used to learn some Tanakh. And he was not an observant man. He didn't keep kosher. He didn't keep Shabbos. He did go to shul because it was a social environment he was comfortable in. Uh, but he was not observant. But for him, that was very much a part of his formation. He was very much shaped in that environment, not raised in a very tradi- not raised in a, in a strictly observant environment, raised in a very European cosmopolitan environment. But still, he had this fundamental sort of anchoring in Jewish languages and literature and thought and practice, and that was his native language. That's displaced, and it was, and things were built here. A community was built here, but that kind of transmission outside of very narrow circles was not was not enabled. Mm-hmm. And I think every displacement has some. There's a loss. There's a loss of language. There's a loss of of certain kinds of knowledge and cultural comfort and there, there are all kinds of things that are lost. So there's there's something lost at every stage, at every displacement, and there's something created. There's something created. And we have a narrative for that because wandering and diaspora and displacement are not unfamiliar to Jewish culture. They, they are the primary state of being, certainly for the last one and a half millennia, certainly. Mm-hmm. And there are really profound Kabbalistic teachings around this. Um, which don't see the state of exile as just a compromise, as just a, a failure that needs to be erased. Um, it's a wound for sure, but the divine is also in exile. The divine is alienated from itself, mm. and the divine itself needs healing. And everywhere we encounter the divine is where we can heal. 
that we can bring bring a little bit of it home and uh, and make it make it whole just a little bit in that moment. And um, so I think there's something lost, but I think there's something gained in that experience as well. Um, and in that in that long cultural experience of displacement, I think we have the tools to deal with it um, in Jewish culture. And I think that the the way that that is going to happen, I think the only way it can happen is deep engagement with Jewish thought and literature. And when it comes to practice, we people can only do what makes sense to them. I think that we need to be really committed to integrity and honesty. I think that the um, in a lot of traditional observant environments, there's almost a demand that you don't go certain places, that your mind can't go certain places. I think we have to go to those places. Mm-hmm. We have to let ourselves go to those places because uh, there, there's you can't transmit something that you're not honest about. Kids are too smart for that. Mm. Kids are too smart for that. They can they can smell hypocrisy and oh, yeah. um, and so I think I think we have an obligation to try to be really honest with ourselves and authentic. Authentic, not in the sense of trying to reproduce something we imagined in the past, but authentic in in terms of like honest and with integrity, authentic to ourselves, um, but engage deeply. We, we have a deep wisdom tradition and it's worth exploring, it's worth engaging with. You gifted up that really, really well. Oh, <laughs> Such yeah. a good Enjoying place to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Raph. Thank you. Thank you.